This podcast is part of the Tremula Network, adventure and outdoor podcasts off the beaten track. To find out more, head to tremula.network or find us on socials. Seize Your Adventure is part of the Tremula Network, adventure and outdoor podcasts off the beaten track. Seize Your Adventure is supported by patrons. If you'd like to support me in creating this podcast and increasing the crossover between epilepsy and adventure, head to patreon.com forward slash seize your adventure. It's been awful. It knocked me out for six. So I've gone from being like, yeah, I cycled all the way around Australia. Look at me to being I don't even know if I can cycle and just do an overnight camp. It, like, it completely knocked my confidence. So I'm, I'm planning on doing some sort of short ride before heading to Asia just to sort of fill that lost confidence up again, which I guess you probably don't want to hear on a seize your adventure. You know, I'm supposed to be gung-ho and everything. But the reality is that the med changeover just made me go, wow, I am so much more vulnerable than I thought. Hello everyone, I am Fran Tarowskis and you are listening to Seize Your Adventure. Thank you all for joining me again. It has been a few months since the end of season one, but in that time, you may have noticed a change in look. I've been personally redesigning the cover art and website, so please don't get confused and accidentally miss me. I have also been pulling together some really interesting stories from all across the spectrum of adventure. This season is going to have more interviews than last season, which means we're going to see a wider range of sports and activities. As well as some more runners and hikers, I have spoken to surfers, cyclists and triathletes, and I've spoken to people scattered across the world. There are some more folks based in Canada and America, but it was great to find a few more UK-based adventurers as well. And I also managed to have some conversations about the psychology and physiology of doing sports with epilepsy. So that's a taste of what's to come. Make sure you're subscribed to hear those ones later in the year. But to start this season off, we're going as far away from the UK as possible and speaking about possibly the biggest and certainly the longest adventure we have had so far on the podcast. Today's chat is with a lady called Becky Sampson. Becky is from the UK, but she hasn't been based there for over three years now. She got in touch with me over a year ago when she was halfway through riding a bike across New Zealand. I was already pretty impressed and jealous of this fact, but she went on to tell me that she had already been riding in Canada and some of the US and after New Zealand she was heading on to Australia and then planning to cycle the long way home through Asia and Europe. We were messaging back and forth for a while and I finally managed to convince her to chat to me officially for the podcast. There was so much I wanted to hear about, but specifically I wanted to talk about the logistics of travelling this long in general, but specifically factoring in the epilepsy. I also insisted that she tell me at least one story about seeing a bear in the wild. 
When we spoke a little bit before Christmas, Becky was actually going through a change in medications whilst living in a tent in Australia. Now, as always, this conversation is Becky's personal experience of epilepsy, medication and adventure travel. I hope that the chat is interesting and useful, but it is not advice. Please do not use it to make decisions without speaking to your epilepsy team. So, here it is, some of my chat with cyclist and world traveller, Becky Sampson. I might have exaggerated a little bit. I was currently based in a tent up until very recently. I'm currently really in a warm showers house in Perth, um, because there's not very many places to pitch a tent in Perth itself. And for those unfamiliar with warm showers, it's a reciprocal host system for people that tour by bicycle. So a little bit like couch surfing. If you're cycling in a country, um, you can look up hosts and uh, ask to stay with them. And then when you're at home, you can host people that are coming through your hometown. Warm showers is something that I have heard about on a few a few other adventures that people have done. And it is specifically for cyclists isn't it so you have that connection yeah there's instantly something you've got in common to talk about so even if you come from completely different backgrounds you definitely have things you can talk about like tire pressures and which is the best saddle to ride on like even if you have nothing else (laughs) you've got something really boring and technical in common Um, but it's also it's just nice to get to know locals and they'll suggest um, a good riding route out of the town sometimes they'll ride with you so it's just a really nice way to connect with the country or area that you're riding through. You're currently on a very an ongoing long bike ride so if you can just tell us quickly about the the bike ride in Australia. Yeah so um, I started in Adelaide and went down to Kangaroo Island, which is just south of Adelaide, and did a sort of two-week tour around there. And that was a practice run for Australia. Um, Just thinking, you know, get used to the bike and the weight of everything on the front, because it's the first time I've had to ride with a huge amount of water on the bike. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that Kangaroo Island is actually the hardest part of cycling Australia in the entire ride. The rest of the country was relatively easy. Um, But then from Kangaroo Island, went back to Adelaide and spent a week there buying food, phoning roadhouses, parceling up these boxes of food and supplies and then posting them ahead. Because when you get out in the outback, there is absolutely nothing for hundreds of kilometers. So you can't buy anything. You can't get hold of food or supplies or or whatever you need so um, did a week of logistics sent all of that ahead and then just started riding north um, and rode through the outback along a track called the Udnadatta which is this off-road epic gravel adventure Um, ended up at Kuba Pedi uh, which is an opal mining town got flooded in the desert it rained for three days solid and the road I'd come in on was then knee deep in water and couldn't get out for four days and I was like what is this this is, you know, this is meant to be a desert um, and then rode up to Uluru which was just magnificent um, and then around Kings Canyon and the West McDonnell Ranges to Alice Springs and then up north to a little tiny town called Catherine and then turned left 
and headed to Broome. And that was the first time I'd seen the ocean since leaving Adelaide. And then spent a few days in Broome and then headed south to Perth. And here I am. So it's been about 7,000 kilometers, I think, riding in Australia. So a fair, a fair distance. Fair distance, to say the least. You make it sound so easy. <laughs> um, I think for me, one of the things that is most impressive or the thing that, that puts me puts me off that kind of journey the most is the logistics so you're talking about having to organize all of your all of your packages beforehand and having to send them forward and that kind of thing where did you get the information about doing that where where did you start and how long did it take to to plan this journey that's a really good question um it was actually a warm showers host on kangaroo island who had also cycled the unadatta track and they drew, um, so I, I did that ride with my partner and the Swarm Showers host drew us a hand-drawn map and marked all these tiny towns on it and roadhouses and places where you could get water. And they said, we did this, I think, seven or eight years ago. And this is where we were able to post supplies or get supplies back then. And so when we got back to Adelaide, we got on the internet, we had a look at Wikicamps, which is an app out here, which shows you um, supermarkets and things like that. Uh, We Googled all the supermarkets in the areas that we'd be going. We contacted the roadhouses. So we just, that's why it took so long. It took us a week just with maps and the internet, looking at where water was, where food was, and where there was neither, where could we get supplies posted to. Um, so yeah, logistically it was a little bit challenging, but it was also quite fun. Um, it was also quite demoralizing when you looked at what we'd bought and went, oh my God, we're just going to eat plastic cheese and crackers and like, you know, mashed potato (laughs) for weeks and weeks and weeks. (laughs) So we did put a cheeky whiskey in uh, one of the boxes and a couple of bars of chocolate for a little bit of a boost when we uh, got the box. (laughs) Oh, nice. Yeah. Cheeky whiskey is definitely, definitely the way to go. (laughs) Um, I think that's something that certainly for me being able to plan it with someone else would help with that kind of long one I think obviously you you have your your boyfriend on this one but you have done quite a lot oh actually oh sorry go ahead yeah um she's my girlfriend actually because <laughs> I know she'll be listening and she'll be like oh you didn't correct that one <laughs> I am so sorry not a problem I, I should have picked up on the fact that you said partner as well. That's um, I'm going to blame. Oh, no, it's, it's on not a problem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, that don't worry. Us, honestly, that does give us one other thing to talk about because um, obviously, I, I thought about this when I've been speaking to a few other people that are travelling with same-sex partners. If you are going through some countries, is that something that you are concerned about, or is that something which you? Do you have a, a network of people that you can speak to to see if there are any issues in, in other countries? I think um, in most countries, uh, certainly sort of the westernised countries, as we'd call them, like Australia and New Zealand, um, they're pretty LGBT friendly. And we've not really had any problems with anyone Going forward, we're looking at going into Asia. And I think whether I was traveling uh, with Liz, my partner, or on my own, I would always respect 
the rules, um, the laws, you know, the culture of whatever country I was in. I think it's important to just know where you're traveling and yeah, respect the culture, regardless of your own sexual preferences or, or whatever it is that, that you do. Does that does that answer it? Uh, it's a bit <laughs> it's yeah. a bit vague, but you know, if if I was in Iran, um, I would put headscarf on and I wouldn't sort of flaunt the fact that we're a couple. Mm. It's not something that would be wise to do. Um, even mm. if you're a straight couple, it wouldn't be wise to do out there. So I think it's just important to to know where you're traveling in and to respect the traditions and cultures and and just act accordingly. Yeah. No, I think that's um, really important for for people to hear. Like I say, it's something that from from a kind of like very privileged point of view of either traveling, you know, I've never had a problem with it. And I've never been to a country where it might might have been an issue if me and my boyfriend were traveling without being married and that kind of thing. Mm. So I do just find it interesting to know what people worry about or don't worry about when they're traveling because it comes back to the thing with the epilepsy as well with some of us some sometimes I, I worry about it and sometimes I don't and I'm sure it's the yeah with you um so you're traveling with your your girlfriend does it make you feel a little bit better having her around obviously because she knows about the epilepsy and she knows kind of your your full history with that Hello there. My name is Cathy Camleitner and I'm here to tell you about my podcast, Wild for Scotland. If you enjoy travelling, spending time outside, learning about nature or simply relaxing to a good story, check out Wild for Scotland and join me for inspiring journeys from the cobbled streets of Edinburgh to the sandy beaches of the Western Isles. We go on scenic road trips up and down the country, hop from island to island, immerse ourselves in Scottish history, culture and landscapes, and meet passionate locals who love sharing their own little corners of Scotland. Think of it like story time for adults that inspires you to head out and learn about the world around you. So join me on the Wild for Scotland podcast. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, yeah, it makes me feel more secure knowing that she's there. So should anything go wrong, I've got someone to sort of pick me up off the floor, quite literally. Mm. Um, having said that, she's never seen me have a seizure. So neither of us know how she'll react if I was to have one. Um, I'm pretty confident she'd be brilliant. But, you know, you just never know, do you? Um, but it's definitely uh, sort of... A nice comfort blanket, I suppose, knowing that you've got that support when you're traveling, um, especially when you're doing something in a country where it's remote or you don't speak the language and you're on a bike. So you already stand out a bit anyway. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's it's nice to know there's someone that's got your back. Yeah. When was your last seizure? When was the last one that you had? So the last one I had was in September 2016 um, and I had been traveling solo for about six months at that point um, and it was the second seizure I'd had in those six months and the first one I'd had was in Canada. I'd been cycling through Canada and I'd stopped for the night 
camped up, woke up the next morning, felt a bit funny, then had a seizure and then was just, I, I wasn't aware that I'd had a seizure, but I woke up running, if that makes sense. It was just the weirdest thing. I felt like I was in a zombie apocalypse movie and I was just running through this forest and I had like blood on me and vomit on me and I was like, what is going on? And I just had that fight or flight instinct and I was just like, I'm running. That's all I know. I feel awful and I'm just going. <laughs> and then I came across this honeymooning couple and I sort of sat down on their picnic bench and I was like, I don't know what's happened, but I do know that I need help. And they're like, we'll get a ranger. And so that was quite awful. Um, and it was, it was fine. You know, I went to the hospital and by the time I'd got there, I was like, okay, yeah, I had a seizure. It's, it's fine. I know what's happened. Um, the second one happened in Hawaii and I was staying with people. Um, one of which screamed and ran out and wouldn't speak to me for three days after she was a little bit um, immature, shall we say? <laughs> um, and the, the others who this cooed over me and took me to hospital and I was like no 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 I just I, I knew what had happened that time and I was like no no I'm, I'm fine I just need to rest and sleep it off but they insisted and then I got a nice thousand dollar bill for um, a cheese sandwich and a glass of water at the local hospital so thank goodness for travel insurance <laughs> yeah but um yeah so I've, I've had seizures traveling solo and I know that I can deal with it I mean, seizures are never fun, whether you're on your own or you've got people around you. Um, and I've now forgotten the question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you you answered it. You answered it. I think it was uh, just when was your last seizure and yeah, how, how. Oh, yeah, that was it. Yeah. No, that's absolutely fine. You mentioned the the travel insurance there. Obviously, something which I encourage people to to make sure that they're getting the right one because sometimes it doesn't cover everything and I think we both have talked about before how annoyingly expensive that can make it yeah so how how have you found it with travel insurance especially doing these longer trips how do you go about making sure you've got the right one travel insurance has been a real pain before I left the UK, I went with, I think it was like Epilepsy Action has some recommended travel insurers, and I went with one of them. So I had like a year's worth of cover or something like that with them, and then I had a second year's worth, and then they said, you've been out of the country too long, we can't help you anymore. So I put on Facebook, help, need travel insurance, I'm not going back to the UK, and I don't know how long I'm going to be away, can anyone recommend anything? Mm. And one company do insurance for if you're already traveling, and they also do it, they cover you if you've got a medical condition. I've been away now for three and a half years, and I'm not going to be back to the UK for a year and a half, <laughs> so... Five years in total, I contacted so many travel insurers and they said, yes, we can cover you, but you need to come back to the UK. And I was like, I'm in New Zealand. Like, uh, no. <laughs> that defeats the point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, it, travel insurance has been a real pain. And I know that a lot of long-term travelers, they'll get their first year and then they'll just say, no, nah, we're going to take the risk. But having epilepsy makes me that little bit more cautious and I think it's worth having especially traveling on a bike and you never know if you know you're going to get hit by a bus or I mean anything could go wrong so I, I just think it's a it's a good thing to have just in case 
yeah completely agree completely agree there it does does make you think about it more when you have that long-standing condition that that big kind of what if hanging over you a little bit more thinking about going to America and when I went over for for a week or so it was it was an absolute panic of checking the insurance I had and checking oh does it what what exactly does it cover me for does it cover me for all of the um, activities that I'm going to be doing and all of this kind of thing Mm. so many caveats when you're doing adventure insurance in general and then as you say making sure that it covers the the epilepsy or whatever long-term condition you have it does it does make it a bit trickier definitely and like you say it's not cheap (laughs) yeah I was gonna say do you mind me asking how has that price changed when you've been traveling how much do you pay for it it's about 550 pounds um for 18 months and that doesn't include the pre-existing medical certificate which is another 20 quid on top I think Mm. so it's it's almost 600 pounds once you've sort of ticked all the boxes and stuff um so it isn't cheap at all Uh, and factoring that into a budget when you're trying to do things as much on a shoestring as possible it's a huge chunk of money you know we sort of we're on average spending I think 35 pounds a week in Australia yeah and uh maybe even less than that and then suddenly having a £600 bill for insurance come out of your bank account, you go, wow, how many weeks could we be cycling on that? (laughs) It puts everything into perspective. (laughs) It does, it does. But as you say, totally worth it. You have had a few issues with, with your forward planning in terms of the medication that you take, haven't you? So can you just talk through the medication that you have been using and what the difficulty was with that going forward? Sure. How long have you got? (laughs) When I first got diagnosed, I refused point blank to go on medication. I was like, no, I've only had one seizure. Don't want it. And the neurologist says, you must, you must, you must. And I sort of made a deal. I said, look, if I have another seizure in the next 12 months, I'll go on meds. And 11 and a half months later, I had a seizure. And I thought, oh, no. So I went on Lamotrigine um, for oh a long time, probably about 14 years. But I was still having seizures fairly regularly. Like I'm, I'm quite lucky. When I say regularly, it would be three or four months, and then I'd have a seizure, and then three or four months later, I'd have another. So I'm, I'm really lucky in that respect. They're not daily. They're not weekly. Um, and then when I was in Hawaii, I was talking to a couple of traveling nurses, and they said, oh, Lamotrigine? Mm we give everyone Kepra and I'd never heard of Kepra before. And so I, I went briefly back to the UK, talked to my neurologist and I said, I've been told Kepra is the way forward. Can I have it? And she said, are you sure? And I was like, yep, I want it. And she said, the side effects are really bad. And I was like, don't care. I want it. So she prescribed me Kepra and yeah, I can give you three months. But after that, you're on your own. You need to find another doctor, wherever you happen to be. And get meds from them and I was like okay fine got to New Zealand found this lovely doctor who was happy to prescribe me medication while I was there Um, in Australia I've I've been able to get medication here as well but I'm now changing again um, from Kepra to ah 
I can't even remember what it's called. Hang on. I think on. you said um, sodium valproate. Sodium valproate. <laughs> yeah, that one. <laughs> you know my meds better than I do. <laughs> Emergency contact right here. Just uh... <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I'll hold you to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I saw a neurologist when I got into Perth and I said, look, I'm, I'm taking this Kepra and it's going to take me 18 months to get back to the UK on my bicycle please can I have at least a 12-month supply? And he was like, uh, no. And I was like, but, well, what am I supposed to do? And he said, well, can you try and get it in other countries? And I was like, I don't speak Thai, I don't speak Chinese, I don't speak like, any of these other languages. Like, it's it's really difficult. It would be much easier if you just prescribe me, like, a year's worth, and then I can sort myself out when I get into Europe. That's not a problem. And he said, well, why are you on Kepra? This is, this is a bit of a, a hardcore med. So he said, go on this, this new stuff. And um, I did a Google search and you can get it in most countries in Asia and you can't get Kepra in most countries in Asia. So I was like, oh, well, that makes, that makes life a lot easier. He said he can try and prescribe me 12 months, no guarantee, but he can at least get me six months and then I can try and get more of it in the countries I go through, whereas I can't get Kepra for love nor money in until I get to Europe, really. Yes. So that's the reason for the med changeover. Um, but it has been hell on earth. <laughs> and I'm so glad I've been able to sort of have a, a safe house, I suppose, in Perth just while I do that. Because uh, mm. originally I was going to walk um, the Bibbleman track. I don't know if you've heard of that. I haven't actually, no. Oh, it looks amazing. It's um, a thousand kilometres and it's a hiking trail from Perth to Albany, which is in the southwest corner of Australia. And I thought, right, I'm going to get to Perth. I'm going to quickly like see the neurologist, just make sure that I can get 12 months stuff and then I'm going to go hiking. And my meeting with the neurologist didn't quite go to plan. And I said, well, that's fine. I'll start the med changeover while I'm hiking and he said no you won't and I was like yeah I will it's not a problem I'll, I'll just take the pills with me and he was like no you'll be too tired just just don't and I sort of thought I just cycled all the way in the big horseshoe loop from Adelaide to Perth like I can hike a few kilometers the famous last words I spent three weeks asleep (laughs) (laughs) I literally managed to sort of get out of bed to shuffle into the kitchen and perhaps shuffle to a sofa and then perhaps shuffle back to bed again like it's been awful it knocked me out for six and I just it really not only did it knock me out physically but it's completely knocked my confidence so I've gone from being like yeah I cycled all the way around Australia look at me to being I don't even know if I can cycle and just do an overnight camp. Mm. You know, it's it like it completely knocked my confidence. So I'm, I'm planning on doing some sort of short ride before heading to Asia just to sort of build that lost confidence up again, which I guess you probably don't want to hear on a seize your adventure. You know, I'm supposed to be gung ho and everything. But the reality mm. is that the med changeover just made me go, wow, I am so much more vulnerable than I thought because Kepra I haven't had a seizure since 2016 and I'm just like Mm. yeah I've solo traveled before I've cycled I've had seizures on my own not a problem and then all of a sudden I've just come off this amazing trip gone on these new meds and just stayed in bed for the best part of a month 
yeah, it's it's just been a nightmare. I'm feeling a lot better now. I mean, if you'd have tried to call me a month ago, you'd have just got mm. <laughs> rather than any conversation and probably a few snores. I'd have probably fallen asleep on you. So I'm doing a lot better now. Glad to hear it. And I absolutely want to hear that side of it as well, because I think it's very easy for people to to listen to the good parts of our stories and go, I could never do that or that's all right for them. But everyone has those up and down times. I've not had a seizure for nearly five years, like I was saying, but I still have those moments of, oh, if I did have a seizure here, that might be quite bad, actually. Um, so yeah, it can very easily throw you. And I think it is good for people to to hear that, so long as it doesn't completely ground you. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not letting it stop me. I think I'm just, I'm a lot more aware now than I was a month ago. Yes. Um, before I was just like, I am an adventurer and I have epilepsy, but I don't know to define me. You know, it's just, it's just something I have and I take a pill in the morning and I take a pill at night and that's the only thing I have to worry about. Whereas now I'm like, ah, oh, actually changing over medications has made me more um, vulnerable, I guess is the best word I can use. And I, I get tired a lot more easy. And I know that it's not going to be forever. I know that eventually once the meds are sort of properly in my system, I'll be feeling a lot more me and, and better. Um, but it was just a bit of a shock to suddenly go, you know, from cycling 100Ks a day to barely being able to do 10Ks and then having to sleep for four days afterwards. <laughs> I was like, what has happened to me? <laughs> no, it's um, completely understandable. It would be quite useful, actually, if you could just go through your your diagnosis a little bit and what type of seizures you have, because obviously everyone has very different seizures. And I think when you when you say seizure, there's a particular form that people get in their head. Is it tonic clonic that you have or do you have different variations as well? Yes, it's definitely the tonic clonic. So I'm the sort of ones that have shown off in Hollywood, you know, where you're just sort of writhing about on the floor and being sick and it's not very pleasant to watch. Um, so that's what I have. I believe I get occasional absent seizures or maybe I'm just absent-minded and um, don't listen to people as often as I should. <laughs> But uh, there's definitely been times when people have talked to me and I've not really taken it in and maybe blamed the epilepsy, mm. perhaps. <laughs> um, but tonic-clonic is definitely the, the main seizure type I have. And that was not officially diagnosed for, well, even till now, to be honest. They've said you have tonic-clonic seizures, but we don't know if it's epilepsy. Um, I don't know how possible it is to not know whether something is epilepsy or not, but... Either way, the result is the same. I'm on medication. I got diagnosed, well, not I got not diagnosed at 17, which was when I had my first seizure and I was taken to hospital and a neurologist saw me and said, yeah, we, we don't know what you've got, but hopefully this is a one-off. And it turns out it wasn't. So I've been on medication pretty much since I was 18. Um, I'm now 36, so half my life. So a really long time. <laughs> It's amazing how often you hear a very similar story. Um, it's not not that different to to mine. The one off that turned into a two off, and then mm, yeah, yeah, and then oh right, this is your tenth. Mm. Mm. 
maybe it's something more yeah <laughs> um, I just want to talk about very quickly as well um you kind of created your own kit to your own specifications didn't you sort of yeah so I um I got the bike um it's a for anyone that's interested it's a surly disc trucker and it's it's basically a beast of a machine that can carry anything you put on it and I got that but it comes with handlebars I don't like and it comes with a rubbish saddle and it comes with not very good tires and all of this kit cost an absolute fortune in New Zealand because it is in the you know middle of the upside down of the world (laughs) so it was a lot cheaper to get um, my saddle posted from England Um, my dad sent it across to me and to order handlebars and tires that I actually wanted um, from Europe so the handlebars came from Germany the tires came from the UK and then I just got a mechanic in New Zealand to put it all together with a few other bits and pieces Um, so it's it's not an off-the-shelf bike but it's not bespoke either Um, but one thing I love about it I got a, a dynamo on it so when you're going at sort of six or seven Ks an hour or more, then it charges your phone or your iPod or, or whatever. It's got a little USB in it. So as you're riding, you're creating your own power, which I just absolutely love. So that's really cool. That is genius. That is... <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> the best invention. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not so good in New Zealand because there are a lot of hills and you spend most of your day climbing up hills and you're not hitting that six or seven K an hour mark. And then you zoom down the other side of the hill and that takes you about three minutes. So you don't really clock any power on New Zealand, but in Australia, like it's really flat and, um, yeah, I'd have a fully charged phone and fully charged iPod within an hour. Mm. Like it's, it's been amazing having that. And it just means that you can go more remote for longer times. Cause I use my phone, for maps more than anything else and for photos and on really long boring stretches of highway of which there are many in Australia um podcasts such as Seize Your Adventure kept me sane (laughs) (laughs) otherwise you're just you're just going along and it's just the same scenery the same the same the same and occasionally there'll be an emu which is really cool or you might see a kangaroo but most of the time uh, it's roadkill rather than alive um and dirt and dust and not much else so yeah having having an ipod and having podcasts was just brilliant and being able to charge that and not have to rely on finding somewhere to do that yeah dynamo worth its weight in gold (laughs) that is genius i love that but i think it's uh again the the idea of something that didn't quite work for you with the bike where you just fixed it to your own your own means essentially and i think that is a very good metaphor for adventuring in general i think people will look at other people's adventures and go oh well i wouldn't do that but it doesn't mean that you can't change it and change things your own kind of like style of doing things a bit more yeah that's true i hadn't thought of it like that before i like that i'm not a massive bike person i did the mountain biking um (laughs) with outdoor mindset which i fell off oh ouch (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't going very fast, so it was not that big a deal. Um, But I actually tried two different bikes, and the first one just didn't work for me at all. And the second one 
was much better so it is i do think it's interesting with with um the equipment you use and that can really make or break your your experience of it essentially oh yeah absolutely i originally started cycling new zealand on a mountain bike because i thought a lot of new zealand is quite rugged and you're off road and i was going really slowly and i was having a sore back and shoulders and i thought this is this is not fun and I rode this bike for oh, quite a while, the whole of the North Island, basically. And then on the South Island, Liz said, here, try my bike. And I did. And it was just, it was amazing. It was like sitting in an armchair, but being propelled forward. And I was like, ah, oh, this is more like it. Now I see how she gets up hills and how she's always like 10 Ks ahead of me. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so I sold the mountain bike and got the same bike that, that she was riding because I was like, if I'm going to be cycling, I don't know how many thousands of kilometers it is to get back to the UK, many, but I thought I, I, I want to be doing it in comfort. So, yeah, I think there, there are some amazing people out there who they'll just go and get a bike from a scrapyard and they'll cycle the world on it. Mm. And I admire mm. them. That's not me. I, I don't want a sore bum and sore legs and, you know, I, <laughs> I'm the wrong side of 30 for that. <laughs> You went. You've you've been in so many places before. You went to New Zealand, so um, you were in Canada for a bit, and you left the UK. Uh, it's about three and a half years now. Yeah, three and a half years ago. So a while back. Would you have any any must sees or anything that you really really would suggest or really enjoyed whilst you were out there? I would say. Um, the Icefields Parkway in Canada is just the most beautiful place I've ever been to. It's got glaciers and these turquoise lakes and snow-capped mountains. It's just stunning. And it, wow. I, I rode my bike from Banff to Jasper and then I turned around and rode back again in the opposite direction because it was just beautiful. And I would go and do it again. And there are bears there and lots and lots of bears. So you'd love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and my first ever encounter with a bear, I was I was quite scared of bears. I still am, to be honest. Like I, I was a bit of a wuss in Canada. I didn't camp. There's these wilderness hostels that are spaced around 50 to 70 kilometers apart along the Icefields Parkway. So they're designed for um, cyclists, really. It's a, a day's ride between each one. So I just thought, I'm just going to get myself a dorm bed in these hostels rather than risk pitching my tent. And so I just hostel hopped the entire way, which is great. And I had my bear spray and I sort of had an idea of what to do if I came across a bear that wasn't really confident. I'm whizzing down this hill, mountain even, you know, and I'm like clocking up ridiculous speeds and I'm like singing at the top of my lungs because someone had said, you know, if bears hear you sing, they run. Anyway, so I'm singing. I'm coming at silly speeds down this hill, and there's a bear in the road. And I'm like, 
and I thought there's absolutely no way that my brakes are going to stop before I get past like to this bear and what if it runs at me should I just swerve around it what if a car comes on the other side like ah and me and this bear just clocked eyes at each other we both pulled exactly the same expression of horror and the bear ran into the woods I swerved out the way of the bear (laughs) and then I sort of turned around and it was standing in the woods like looking at me and I'm sure like we both kind of went phew didn't have to deal with that one (laughs) the idea of slow travel is starting to become a bit bigger in terms of the environmental factors of it as well yeah Um, yeah it is isn't it yeah. yeah do you do you have any ideas on that side of things um I'm all for it I think the the more we can do to like reduce the carbon emissions in the atmosphere the better and the more people are seen to walk or cycle or you know take alternative forms of transport the more visible it becomes and the more ordinary it becomes so then people just start doing it as opposed to just going huh well look at that person on their bike why aren't they driving you know it it once something is normalized then everybody else starts going, oh, it's okay to do that. I won't stand out and look a bit odd. And I think it's brilliant that slow travel is, as you say, it's becoming a movement. People want to go back to sort of just taking it easy, seeing things. Um, I think in a car, you miss so much on a bike or on your feet. You, You don't just zoom past stuff. You're in that environment you can smell it you can see it you can hear it you can all of your senses are engaged and sometimes the smells are horrible it's roadkill but sometimes they're beautiful they're like really rare spring flowers and you you have to have both of those to sort of appreciate everything that the world has to offer in a car you've got a radio and aircon you're going at 80 90 kilometers an hour and you don't see the lizards that are just sunbathing on the side of the road. And you don't see the camels that are hiding in the sand dunes. But, you know, you just see an empty stretch of highway and you just get bored. But when you're self-propelled and you're just using a human-powered transport, you're in it. You're part of that environment and it's just fantastic. So more people that do it, the better. <laughs> Quite agree. Quite agree. Speaking to Becky was so incredible. She mentioned to me at one point how nice it was to be able to speak to someone else who gets the epilepsy adventure mix and that she had never met anyone who fit into that category before. I'm lucky. I did six interviews for the first season and I've already done another six for this one, but I still end up talking for hours with most of the guests And I realise that some of you might wonder why if I speak to the guests for several hours, you only get a half an hour interview. It would be a lot less work for me to put them out slightly less edited, but there are reasons I do edit the interview so much. Part of it is that I am always going to create the content that I would listen to, and I do prefer shorter structured interviews so I cut out things that may be repetitive, for example. But the main reason the episodes are much shorter than the actual chats 
is that I am very aware of the responsibilities and the ethics of creating content about a health condition like epilepsy. I obviously do not want to share misinformation about medications, but I also don't want to share too much anecdotal stuff about things like doctors and hospital appointments. There is also a responsibility needed when talking about adventure sports in general, and there are ethics around sharing content about my guest or myself that is personal, or any stories that involve anyone other than ourselves. So yes, it takes me a long time to edit the episodes, but this season, with your help, I can devote more time to doing this regularly. Seize Your Adventure now has a Patreon account. This lets you set up monthly donations to give me that breathing room needed to make this kind of creative content. If you do find value in the work I do, you can support me at patreon.com forward slash seize your adventure. So that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash seize your adventure. If you are in a position to support me, you can become a patron from as little as $3 a month. I'd like to give a small shout out to my very first patrons. So Catherine Coppinger, Peter Johnson, Damiana Day and Jeannie Schroker. You are all my very first patrons and you've been added to the Patreon newsletter and your names are on the website. Thank you so much. I now have enough money coming in to pay for the Seizure Adventure email every month, so it really does help. The next episode is actually another bonus episode. My chat with Becky was over four months ago now, so I phoned her again last week for a quick catch-up And you might have noticed I completely forgot to ask Becky what adventure means to her. But one thing we did talk about in the interview was how epilepsy, rather than limiting her world, actually opened some doors to some amazing adventures. So I'll leave you with that thought from Becky. And until the next episode, safe adventures, everyone. The epilepsy diagnosis was actually a good thing for me because it made me discover different ways of travel. So I don't know if I'd be riding a bike halfway across the world, if I could still drive and have access to, you know, normal things that people can do. Because originally I'd got myself a little Vespa and I was going to bike around Italy. That was my sort of big plan, Um, like as in motorbike around Italy. Now I'm not able to do that. So Cycling's opened up many doors and epilepsy opened up the door to cycling. So it's been a really positive thing having the diagnosis in a weird kind of way. (laughs) This podcast is part of the Tremula Network, adventure and outdoor podcasts off the beaten track. To find out more, head to tremula.network.